0: History show with
1: Marv Duncan. Good evening on this week's program Syndrome K.
0: So it was relatively easy to keep the Germans on the occasions they came to the hospital away from the closed rooms and wards where the Jews were concealed.
1: Lucia Ryan reports from Rome on the highly contagious and totally fictitious illness invented to save Jews in Italy from the Nazis.
2: Also, So if he was sent out to Gallipoli, whatever else was going on around him, you know, he was going to be fascinated by the plants and flowers that he saw.
1: From Dublin's Botanic Gardens to the killing fields of Gallipoli, we'll hear about the life of Charles Frederick Ball, one of the best-known botanists and horticulturalists in Ireland. And to begin this evening, the oral history of the Irish Civil War. The social and political upheaval of the Irish Civil War profoundly affected the lives of families and communities across Ireland. The conflict was, for many, too painful to discuss. There are, of course, many accounts of the more famous names and the well-known events of the war. But ordinary men and women, be they combatants or civilians, were usually reluctant to talk about what they experienced or witnessed at that time. This is why oral history is so valuable. The memories and stories recorded on tape for posterity, especially when they are stories which people never discussed with friends and family or passed down to the next generation. This evening, we're going to hear voices recorded in 1979 for an oral history initiative called the Urban Folklore Project, which is held in the National Folklore Collection at UCD. We begin with D.V. Horgan, who was on the pro-treaty side. He was a commandant in the Free State Army. And here, he's recalling how he felt carrying out raids on the
3: houses of people that he knew personally in Cork during the Civil War. One of the things, the most obnoxious thing that I could find was raiding houses and people that I knew. But again, I was a junior officer and that was that. This was something that really hurt me an awful lot. And it hurt an awful lot of of us, but it was a question of survival, you know, at that time. And uh, we were fair game. So this was it. The civil war is a bitter war, as you'll find through history. In any campaign where you've had a division within a nation, it can be a very, very bitter one.
1: I'm joined now by Dr Christor McCarhig, Director of the National Folklore Collection at UCD, who has brought us a selection of extracts from this oral history project. Christor, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Could you explain the background, first off, of the big collection, the National Folklore Connection, the kind of material that's contained in it? We just heard a great example of it there.
4: Well, the National Folklore Collection builds on the work of the Irish Folklore Commission which was established in 1935 and its predecessor, the Irish Folklore Institute, set up in 1930. and they had a very broad remit uh, in collecting folklore. It was one of the flagship projects, I think for the government at the time that in the place names commission, you know projects that focused on Native Irish identity, and the, really the thrust of the commission was to was to capture, preserve to rescue, in, in Seamus O'Delarga's words, he was the first honorary director of the commission. So as part of their collecting efforts, they would, of course, recorded a lot of the, the verbal arts, storytelling, traditions, customs, beliefs, and a lot about material culture. It was a very holistic approach to collecting. But historical tradition featured very strongly in the work of the commission. And primarily events from the 19th century... It's quite interesting to note that, you know, in the 1930s, there was little effort made to record details about the revolutionary years. They, they were almost too close, mm. <clears throat> you know.
1: So they would talk about the land war and they would talk about... They would talk uh, about the land war, and the, the, the famine
4: and Parnell and the Home Rule Party and so on. But really effectively, from the First World War on, the attention, the focus really is on shall we say, 19th century rather than Hmm. uh, contemporary.
1: So when people had actually fought in the Civil War, more often than not, they wouldn't want to talk about it. What was the response to the urban folklore project from veterans? Because there were still many of them alive in 1979, 1980, when the project was ongoing. Many were interviewed and uh, this was a project to record... What life was like in Dublin. It wasn't specifically about the uh, the Irish Revolution. It wasn't specifically about the uh, the Civil War, but that material crept in, didn't it?
4: It did, and uh, I think the Urban Folklore Project set out to, I suppose, to to target, to locate people who were active participants in the revolutionary period. However, they also interviewed a lot of other people, ordinary citizens, but. By and large, the veterans were very happy to speak about what happened. Now, as to whether they weren't detailed questioned in, in huge detail about every single event, but they were happy to provide a narrative, their own narrative of what they remembered.
1: And about a quarter of the people who were interviewed were actually veterans of the revolutionary period.
4: This is very true. And I, I would imagine, Miles, that in, in the wake of the 1966 uh, the fiftieth, you know, commemoration of nineteen sixteen, uh, and perhaps too, to some degree, against the backdrop of the troubles, as they were at the time, there was a, a, a greater focus of interest on that revolutionary period. And it's really only from the certainly the sixties and seventies that we begin to really make use of oral history and, you know, treat it as a as a serious subject. For historical investigation,
1: interestingly, also one hundred and ninety <laughs> veterans were recorded. Eighty-four of them were women. That seems to be a very high percentage.
4: Yes, because another focus, uh, not just on the on the combatants, but also on them on, Many of whom were were, of course, combatants, but also facilitated and furthered the cause of the the revolutionaries uh, around them. So they were targeted as well, just as. As all other veterans of the period.
1: Let's hear a, another clip from the collection uh, featuring two women. This is Mrs. Monahan from Herberton Road. She's talking about two brothers she knew who were on opposite sides in the Civil War.
5: Do you know there was families I knew them down in An Street, and one brother was in the Free State, yes, and the other was in the other. And they used to be uh, when they come in at dinner at the be no, with was mm-hmm. Fine. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: it was terrible. The brother-against-brother brother story that we know so well, but I'm sure there were, with 84 women contributing, there were quite a few sister-against-sister stories as well. Um, but that's illustrated by somebody who witnessed it at first hand. In this clip, we hear Mrs Kerwin from Rathfarnham. She was very young during the Civil War, but uh, here she recalls being at the funeral of Michael Collins. Yeah. I saw Michael
3: Collins' funeral. Is Gone along, Stephen's grave. yeah. Yeah. And I remember they had a slogan out that time, lie over Mick and make room for Dick. Dick Mulcahy. I was only a very small child at the time.
4: Yeah. Oh, and
3: was big, he, it must be very big. Huge. Uh, to me, of course, I seemed to be standing there for hours on steps on Stephen's green. Yeah. My mother brought me.
1: And you'd wonder how many children repeated that slogan over and over again. uh, I uh, over make make room for Dick without understanding what the heck they were talking about. Now, um, you also brought a clip from a man named Patrick Galvin. Um, He talks about losing his job. That I presume is not the Patrick Galvin who was the the, the playwright and songwriter and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Different one.
4: No, no. And uh, he laments the fact that, you know, after the war, having taken the joined the losing side, as it were, the anti-treaty side, that as a result he lost his job in a a shop in Fleet Street because that would have been dominated by Free State or pro-treaty people.
1: Okay, let's hear the voice of Patrick Galvin.
0: I had no job. The one that I had in the electric light in Fleet Street, of course, I mean to say, I lost that. Uh, After the Civil War was over, what really happened was, of course, I mean to say that they happened to know, you see, of course, that I was out against them, do you see, certain people in the job I should have I, I should have objected to because we were put there, we were, after the Tan War, do you see, never to be sacked when there, uh, there was work there. And of course, if you had a different opinion with some people that was working at the job, do you see, right, you were gone. So that's what happened to me. I was gone because they knew, do you see, of course, that I fought against the on the Republican side, I fought against the state, and I was sacked
1: in In so many cases, oral history may have been the only way that a person or an event was actually remembered but um, from what you were saying earlier, uh, we can assume that it wasn't always accepted as valid historical testimony
4: I think most historians would agree that it, it's really only into the the latter half of the 20th century that oral history oral testimony was taken taken seriously, and that's to some degree because it's confused with oral tradition. Oral history, you could say, is recorded from people who observed or were participants in contemporary events. But oral tradition is passed on from generation to generation. So it's memories about memories, if you like, in some ways.
1: If I can stereotype it as people talking about fairies, for example, that's the oral tradition.
4: Yes, and historians would have suspected it and felt that, you know, mythological and concepts and so on uh, uh, are crept into the narrative so it lacked the hard facts or at least built on those hard facts however you know oral tradition for the community is about meaning you know what was the outcome what was the outworking of a, of an event and how did it impact on the the collective memory
1: because even if there is a lot of mythology in oral history or oral tradition, obviously there's a lot in oral tradition, it's still significant because this is what people believe, this is what people thought, this is what drove them and motivated them.
4: Exactly. And, and it's, if you like, it's, it's a collectively agreed narrative among the community. And it draws on imagery that really highlights the, you know, the importance of an event. What was its significance you know, to the community? That's what's remembered.
1: Now, there's a new initiative by the National Folklore Collection at, at UCD in collaboration with RTE, with uh, Scratch Films and with uh, government funding. And you're reaching out to people to come forward to tell the stories that were passed down to them from those who lived through the uh, the, the Civil War. Tell us a little bit about the Civil War Memory Project. Unlike the Urban Folklore Project, most people from that time are, are long dead. So who are you reaching out to?
4: Well, we're we're, we're spreading the net as wide as we can, Miles, and we're asking people to share narratives that they may have heard from their parents or indeed grandparents or neighbours around them. Obviously, it's 100 years. A lot of water has flown under the bridge since that time. So I think this is an opportunity to capture now, perhaps our last meaningful opportunity to capture much of the... Local tradition, especially, you know, what happened on the ground and to sample, you know, what are the how, how strong are the feelings, what was the impact, the wider impact socially and even politically, because, of course, we know the inheritance, the the, the legacy of uh, of political division between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and so forth.
1: There could be people listening who think, well, I don't have a story to tell, but you want them mm. to, to look into their hearts, uh, I suppose, to some extent, because they may actually have a story to tell. It's not just about getting the, the stories of the big ambushes and the personalities. You want to, want to hear about the experiences for communities from all over the country and how it impacted.
4: Exactly, Miles. The Really what we'd like to do is to encourage people to think of an event, however small detail, however small, that throws more light on what happened. So even though a grandparent or a relative was not directly involved in activities at the time, nonetheless, the events themselves are remembered strongly at a local level. So somebody who may not have had any or whose family were not directly involved, nonetheless, there are witness Mm traditions and, and accounts witness accounts that have passed down over generations, and we'd like to tap into those
1: and there's a documentary being made about the project as it continues.
4: Yes, to some degree, I, I suppose it's an opportunity for us all to you know to go through the process of collecting and and witness the strength of feeling you know to test the waters to some degree. how much detail has lingered on into the present times and how willing people are to talk to us and and from our feelers from contacting people we've been phoning people and writing to people uh, for several months now and uh, we would urge people to come forward because what they consider to be small or trivial may indeed throw a lot of interesting light on events
1: Even if it's only a verbal paragraph it doesn't matter it could make a difference Exactly How do people get in touch if they want to be involved in the project?
4: So they can contact us there's a team of people at history at scratchfilms.com They can also contact us directly at uh, UCD in the National Folklore Collection and we have uh, an email address there bealeides, B-E-A-L-O-I-D-E-A-S the Irish word for folklore at ucd.ie
1: well, we've just been hearing uh, a sample of some of the interviews that were recorded for the Urban Folklore Project for from 1979 to 1980. And fantastic sound quality, I have to say, as well. And they're held in the National Folklore Collection in UCD. In this final clip you brought, I think this is a really, really fascinating clip. Um, this We're going back to Commandant D.V. Horgan, whom we heard earlier. And he illustrates the whole thing of very, very graphically, brother against brother. Tell me about this.
4: Yes, a very graphic account. Commonant D.V. Horgan, he was interviewed in Dublin as part of the Urban Folklore Project, but of course he, he was a cockman. And he served in the National Army, in the Free State Army, the pro-treaty side. Uh, but his brother, Ned, was an anti-treaty supporter. And uh, their poor mother had to keep the peace and ensure that the two never met, because of course they were on opposing sides... And Horgan had the unenviable task of, as so many Free State Army soldiers, of raiding and rooting out former comrades.
1: Okay, so here, once again, is the testimony of D.V. Horgan.
3: I held one thing, Ned held the other, and my mother, God rest her, uh, used to try and... If I came first, I went into the kitchen, and if Ned came first he went into the kitchen but if I came second or he came second we went into the parlour which was the uh, just two rooms in, a, in an old-fashioned house that we lived in on the Gleshin Road you know mm-hmm. but there was no there was no bitterness no nothing. So him.
5: You'd, you'd often meet in the house when you were actually in the National Army and when he was in the Irregulars?
3: No I would never meet him my mother would ensure that if I were first right. I would be in the kitchen And if he were first, he would be in the kitchen. And when I arrived then, and if I couldn't get into the kitchen, I knew Ned was in the kitchen. Mm. That was the way it was. And my unfortunate mother, who had to kind of keep the dividing line and look after both of us at the same time.
1: And uh, credit to Seamus McPhillips, who recorded many of these testimonies and did a a fantastic job. As I say, the sound quality of those recordings is truly excellent. Interestingly, our researcher uh, Liz Gillis had a look at Ned Horgan's Bureau of Military History witness statement in the course of which he doesn't even mention the fact that he had a brother which is tragic and very, very sad in its its own way. But that was the voice of D.V. Horgan, brother of Ned Horgan, D.V. Horgan of the National Army, talking about how his mother dealt with the fact that her two sons were on opposite sides of the Civil War. we we'll would have to leave it there, but uh, if anyone would like to get in touch with the Civil War Memory Project, email history at scratchfilms.com and if you'd like to hear uh, some recordings from veterans, there's a selection of the National Folklore Collection website or on the website. And it's the Remembering 1916 page. The address is ucd.ie slash folklore slash 1916. We have all the details up on our website. My guest is Christopher McCarthy. And thank you, Christopher, for joining us. And uh, all the very best with the Civil War Memory Project. Thank you, Miles. After the break, we'll hear about Syndrome K, the fake disease that saved Italian Jews from the Nazis during World War II. Stay with us.
6: Follow us on Twitter at RTEE History
4: Show.
1: Now we're going back to 1943 and visiting Italy in the middle of World War II. That was the year that Benito Mussolini was deposed. The Kingdom of Italy officially changed sides in the war and the Germans captured the city of Rome. A group of doctors in the Italian capital came up with an ingenious plan to rescue Jews from the Nazis. Our reporter, Lucia Ryan, has the story.
6: This is the story of an extremely contagious and lethal disease that saved those who caught it. <laughs> 79 years ago, at the Fatebenefratelli Fratelli Hospital in the heart of Rome, patients were coughing uncontrollably, suffering from a new, highly contagious and life-threatening illness. In October of 1943, German troops were situated in the Italian capital and they were under orders to round up Jews to be sent to concentration camps. In the lobby of the Fateh Fratelli hospital, a medical officer of the Weimarkt was talking to the hospital's chief physician. He wanted access to the wards to look for Jews.
0: When the Germans arrived in Rome, and the SS as well, it was clear to the Jews of Italy, as to everybody else in Europe, that the final solution was well underway.
6: In Flawless German, the hospital's doctor explained to him the risks of blindness, paralysis and dementia, the new disease called Syndrome K caused. On hearing this, the officer decided it would be wiser not to visit the patients, and he left the hospital. The war was not going well for Italy. In 1943, Rome was heavily bombed for the first time. Mussolini had been ousted and arrested. On the 8th of September, Italy declared the armistice. The following day, the new prime minister and the king fled the capital, and the German army marched into Rome, ushering in nine months of hunger and repression. The Nazis put Herbert Kepler in charge of the Roman division of the Gestapo. His first order of business was that of handling the Jewish situation. I spoke with Christian Jennings, author of the soon-to-be-published book Syndrome K, How Italy resisted the final solution.
0: The German operations to round up and try to deport Italy's Jews began in Rome in October 1943, led and spearheaded by an Einsatz commando headed by Adolf Eichmann himself, along with a series of other SS and Gestapo officers.
6: At 5.30 in the morning on the 16th of October 1943, Gestapo troops stormed the Jewish quarters in Rome and arrested and deported over a thousand Jews. Only 16 would return after the war. In front of the ghetto in Rome lies the Tiber Island. On it stands the Fate Bene Fratelli Hospital. In 1943, It was run by Chief Physician Giovanni Borromeo and the Treasurer, the Polish religious brother Maurizio Bialek. Together, they helped conceal Jews and resistance fighters by admitting them under false names, suffering from the phantom disease, Syndrome K. Dr Chiara Donati is archivist at the General Cordia of the Hospitaller Order of St. John of God and has analyzed over 800 medical records from the hospital.
5: Brother Maurizio Bialek was a Polish friar and uh, at the time of this event uh, he was standing in for uh, uh, the prior who was absent from Rome for the war. He personally risked his life by accepting that uh, the hospital should be a meeting place for the various opponents of the fascist regime and uh, a refuge for Jews.
6: The chief physician and the religious brother, together with a young Jewish doctor, Vittorio Manuele sacerdoti and a young medical student, Adriano Sicini secretly set in motion a plan to hide the fleeing Jews in the hospital by admitting them as patients. The first matter to deal with was how to justify the new influx of people into the hospital and shield them from unwanted attention. They needed to come up with a diagnosis. Doctors at the hospital helped
0: conceal and hide jews and jewish families together in the hospital itself there are different accounts from each of them about what happened during the war what tends to happen with the these three is they're self-effacing heroic people they tend to give each other more credit for the the plan and the operation than themselves and so the accounts differ slightly but they also corroborate and what they would do is when Jewish families or, or individual Jews took refuge in the hospital, which, as we know, is in an island on the River Tiber, very close to where the old Jewish ghetto stood itself, the doctors there would isolate them in a number of rooms and wards and amongst themselves came up with the idea of saying that perhaps they could disguise these people as having some fictitious disease, a highly infectious respiratory disease, and the staff at the hospital knew that um, German search parties from the Gestapo, the SS, Italian fascist police, would be very frightened of anybody having suspicious, mysterious, infectious disease. So it was relatively easy to keep the Germans on the occasions they came to the hospital away from the closed rooms and wards where the Jews were concealed. As to the name of Syndrome K, accounts say that it came either from the original basis of Koch's bacillus tuberculosis itself, so the K from there, but also from the name of um, the German high commander in Italy, Albert Kesselring, or even the Gestapo chief in Rome, Herbert
6: Kepler. So Syndrome K was born. When in autumn of 1943 the Nazis entered the hospital with the task of searching the building for Jews, the fear of contagion, coupled with the instructions that Borromeo had given the fake patients, resulted in the officers leaving the hospital.
5: Borromeo had told the fake patient not to speak, to look at the soldier with crazy eyes and to cough continually. Uh, to simulate a dangerous and contagious disease.
6: As soon as the officers left, the coffin stopped. And when the coast was clear, they sat up in bed and sighed a sigh of relief.
5: The phantom disease uh, that appeared on the morning of the 16th of October, 1943, during the raid of the gate in Rome, disappeared on the 40th of June, 1944. The Italians woke up free and healed. In
6: 2004, the late Dr. Borromeo was awarded one of the most prestigious recognitions as Righteous Among Nations by Yad Vashem. And in 2016, the hospital itself was recognized as House of Light by the International Raoul Wohlbeg Foundation.
0: The phrase syndrome K has since come to symbolize the ingeniousness, amongst and amongst other things, of how normal Italians helped conceal, hide, and help so many of the Jewish population from 1943 onwards until the Germans were defeated in Italy. The number of people they helped hid and assisted ranged between 27 to 100, perhaps more.
6: Even if the precise number of those who were saved is unknown, What is certain is that the quick thinking and immense courage of the doctors, religious and hospital staff was a beacon of light in very bleak and dark times. So many lives were saved by Syndrome K.
1: Lucia Ryan was reporting there on Syndrome K, the fake illness invented to rescue Jews from the Nazis. And in that report, we heard from Christian Jennings. He's the author of the book, Syndrome K, How Italy Resisted the Final Solution. It tells the story of how Jews in Italy escaped the Holocaust thanks to this fictitious disease, as well as the many other ingenious ways Italians fought a concerted, covert battle to resist the Holocaust. That book is published by the History Press. After the break, the story of botanist Fred Ball, assistant keeper at Dublin's Botanic Gardens, and his experiences on the killing fields of Gallipoli in 1915.
6: Follow us on Twitter at RTÉ History Show.
1: We're going to look now at the story of a man whose abbreviated life took him from Dublin's Botanic Gardens to the Killing Fields of Gallipoli. It's a story told in a forthcoming book from Liffey Press, a biography of a man named Charles Frederick Ball. He was assistant keeper at the Botanic Gardens... And he carried his keen professional interest in horticulture to that World War I battlefield. As artillery boomed in the background, his attention was drawn to the flowers and the other plant life that he found there. The author of the book is Brian Willen, who joins me now, Brian, you're very welcome indeed to the History show. Okay. Now the book began, as I suppose many World War I projects have, with a small metal box of letters. Tell me about the letters of Fred to alice
2: the letters as you say were in a a, a very small uh, metal box and i, I first uh, came across them about three years ago after my mother died and uh, they had been written from fred ball as he was always known to alice and to his family to alice uh, who was my grandmother but my grandmother as a result of her second marriage not her first marriage so so that was the connection and uh, I, I knew nothing, whatever, about Fred Ball up until that point. My my mother had mentioned um, his name once or twice, and my my aunt Eileen as well, but uh, it, it it meant absolutely nothing to me. And uh, and to be honest, uh, I didn't have a, a particular interest in pursuing it until uh, until this box of letters materialised, yeah. and uh, it, it was absolutely fascinating reading through it.
1: Well, it obviously personalised the subject. Um, tell us a little bit about his background. The background, they say, before he comes to Ireland, because. He's not, he wasn't actually. He wasn't Irish. He wasn't born in Ireland. Uh,
2: he, he wasn't Irish. He was English. Um, he was born in uh, Loughborough in Leicestershire. He, he didn't come from a, a, a kind of horticultural family, as it were. There wasn't that sort of family tradition. Uh, his father was a chemist, had a business in the high street in, uh, in Loughborough, and uh, what happened was that he actually died um, at a pretty early age, forty-nine, I think he was which left the family in a, a pretty difficult situation. Um, and I think it meant that so far as uh, his career was concerned, when, when Fred had a, a developed a fascination in botany, he started right from the beginning. He, At the age of 16, he went off about 15 miles away and took out an apprenticeship with a, uh, a nursery business. And that was the first of those. He, he then moved to a, another job just outside London, which he did for another year. And at that point, he obviously wanted to get on he He was clearly absolutely fascinated by the world of plants and as it happened, that job was pretty close to the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew and that this was obviously the place that you needed to go to if you wanted to get on in the profession of horticulture uh, so that 's what he did he He applied and he he got in um, had his training there. And it was at the end of his second spell there that he came to Ireland because what happened was that he he left in um, 1903, set up a nursery business with his brother. Uh, It didn't succeed. Uh, He needed another job, went back to Kew, but was really rather overqualified for the job that they gave him. And essentially he was waiting, I think, for an opportunity to arrive. And it, it did arrive So
1: he came to Dublin in 1906 to be an assistant keeper. And the keeper of the Botanic Gardens at the time was another Fred, or perhaps it's a bit infradig, Frederick (laughs) Frederick Moore. I think he became Sir Frederick Moore at some point as well. So tell me about Sir
2: Frederick Moore. He had been there um, for a long time. In fact, uh, I think since um, 1879. His father before him had been the, the previous keeper of the Botanic Gardens. So it was a, a bit like Kew, actually. There was a kind of dynasty. He had a, a very good reputation. He'd built up the gardens you know, pretty successfully. He was regarded very much as a, a horticulturalist rather than a, a botanist or a scientist. But he was pretty highly regarded. I think what had happened was that the broader picture, I think, at this time, was that um, the gardens had come under the Department of Agriculture and Technical Instruction with Sir Horace Plunkett and all of the initiatives that he was responsible for. And I think the reason why... Fred got the job as assistant keeper. Why Frederick Moore was able to make the case to the department that he needed an assistant, because there hadn't been one there before, was that he had become increasingly involved in advising the government on other matters, you know, to do with fruit farming, for example, and technical uh, education. And I think as a result of that, he was able to make the case that uh, he needed uh, an assistant. And I think he, it was obvious from the letters and some of the correspondence in the archives that has has survived for this period. I think it's obvious that as soon as Fred arrived... Frederick Moore you know, saw that this was an extremely good person and he really wanted to, to hold on to him. So he had to make the case to create the new job. But he, he did in the end manage to do that, even though at the time the department had a preference for somebody who was Irish born because it was that, that mm. period where that was politically you know, the desirable thing. But um, Frederick Moore was able to persuade the department that Fred really had the qualities that, uh, that were needed and that they simply didn't exist amongst uh, anybody else uh, in Ireland.
1: Let's go back to the letters, the, the letters to your, to your grandmother, Alice Lane. They were, um, essentially they were love letters
2: really, weren't they? They were, largely. Um, they're certainly full of uh, endearing sentiments. He was clearly smitten by Alice. She was a lot younger than he was. And I think the most interesting ones were were when, you know, she was away in Brussels. She went to a finishing school there and Fred at the time was in in Dublin. But uh, because they were in kind of slightly different worlds, the the letters that, that Fred wrote were actually pretty informative as well because she wasn't in Dublin at the time. He was telling her, you know, what was going on. And they, I mean, their relationship had its ups and downs. I, I, I think mean, he, he first proposed to her when she was 18. Uh, 19, 19, I think she right, was. Okay. Yeah. And I think she wasn't quite ready for that. I mean, unfortunately, none of her letters have survived. So you, you kind of get uh, your view of her reaction from Fred's mm. letters in response but it's clear that you know she was much younger she wasn't quite ready for that and uh, essentially she put him off and uh, he said well he he certainly wouldn't want to persuade her if she wasn't sure of of her mind and said well let's just be friends and you know and leave it at that but i think their relationship did reestablish itself and um you know they they got together again and when when Alice was back in dublin at the end of 1912 i think it's clear that they they did become a lot closer they saw a lot more of each other and Fred then proposed a second time, early in 1913, and this time the answer was yes.
1: But she changed her
2: mind. But she changed her mind. <laughs> she did. She she said yes, and I think they had agreed, uh, from the look of it, they had agreed a date, and they started looking around for houses in, in Glasnevin but then uh, i think she had some second thoughts and had some doubts about it and said look can we put this off and so they they remained engaged but uh, they they didn't take the final step until the end of 1914 and that was after fred had uh, had enlisted and i think it was when he thought that he was about to be sent off you know somewhere outside ireland or or the uk and uh, at that point, she said, I think we must get married as soon as possible. Yeah.
1: Now, he enlisted uh, in the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, which is one of the most celebrated Irish units in the. Great War, known as the the Pals, the Pals Battalion or the Pals Regiment, many of them rugby players who joined together in in Lansdowne Road. So he 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 was part of that. I mean, I'm not sure that he was whether he was involved, whether he was sporting or anything like that, but certainly he joined that particular
2: unit. He did. Um, he wasn't at this point uh, a rugby player himself, but I think that he uh, he knew a lot of the people. Um, it was quite interesting, actually. There was one letter that has survived that he wrote from um, the Curragh shortly after you know he had enlisted. And the first letter is different from the second letter because it was clear that by the time the second letter was written, he had actually transferred into D Company. And that's where he remained and that's where he met you know, all of these other friends and colleagues. Frank Laird, you know, the, the Gunning brothers, for example. And they actually formed a, a pretty close-knit unit. And I think that's actually one of the things that does, you know, come through fairly clearly is that sort of sense of camaraderie.
1: So he is part of the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers D Company and is sent fairly quickly. I mean, by <laughs> August of 1915 their landing at, at, at Souvla Bay. Did you get any sense of what that would have been like? Is any of this treasure trove
2: of letters, does it come from, does it come from Gallipoli? Uh, no, it doesn't. The last letter in the metal box is from late in 1914. So um, at least until um, there were some letters that were published uh, after his death, which he had written to Sir Frederick Moore at the Botanic Gardens, those relate to the latter part of his time there and essentially it was when they had sort of moved from the attempt to take the surrounding hills to the kind of trench warfare that he'd ended up with. So those letters or extracts from them you know, were were published. Um, but you do actually get quite an interesting picture of the initial phases of the Super Bay landing from some of the other people who were there. You know who were actually quite close friends of Fred's, um, Frank led, for example, um, Cecil Gunning and his his brother Frank Gunning, who um, you know were very close friends of Fred's at the time, and uh, the Gunning's particularly. This is actually a a diary that's only come to light, you know, fairly recently within the last few years, and really provides a, a very vivid account of of the landings and also the um, the assault on uh, Tepe, which you know was a a kind of famous and very bloody assault mm. where where D Company lost pretty much half of the number. They've
1: come unstuck. Uh, or they came unstuck at Kirichtepi search, yeah. Um, I, I mean Frank Laird you mentioned Frank Laird. Frank Laird, a member of or a fellow member of the seventh Royal Dublin Fusiliers actually published a memoir in 1925, I think it was. Didn't live long, very, very long after that himself, as as I recall. But I also recall reading that memoir, and there are references uh, to Fred Ball as this strange individual. He's wandering around, oh, you know, looking at, instead of looking at the Turks and, uh, you know, look, look, looking, looking out for himself, is basically looking at the vegetation, the plant life.
2: Yes, and and that was also very evident in the uh, the letters that um, that Fred wrote back to Sir Frederick Moore, and I think it was obvious that uh, he he was you know regardless of the surroundings you know he was passionately interested in the plants and flowers wherever it was that he went to. I mean he he used to spend uh, his annual holidays going you know plant collecting in Switzerland and Bulgaria. And so, if he was sent out to Gallipoli, you know, whatever else was going on around him, you know, he was going to be fascinated by the flowers that he saw. But Frank um, Frank Laird also has some other interesting things to say about Fred as well. In addition to, you know, his fascination with with flowers, there was uh, an occasion shortly after the assault on Chocolate Hill, which was, you know, in the initial phases of the of the landings. Fred, um, it, it was clear, had been the one who volunteered to assist uh, a very badly wounded colleague called uh, Hugh Anderson, who remarkably survived, but uh, somebody had to take him down to the uh, the ambulance station and down to the beach and, and, and onto uh, one of the hospital ships. And Fred was the one who volunteered to do that. And it was also the case that subsequently when... Um, Frederick Moore, Sir Frederick Moore, wrote uh, his obituary, he he reported that quite a few people had written to him to tell him that there were a number of other instances where, you know, Fred had simply volunteered and stepped forward. I mean, for example, when he was killed, it was as a result of going to the aid of a colleague uh, who'd been injured by shell fire and that he then got it when the second shell came through.
1: Yeah, I mean, like a lot of Dubliners of that generation, he didn't survive Gallipoli and Frank Laird in his memoir describes the death of of Fred Ball. Tell us a little bit more about, about how he died.
2: Um, what, what happened was that the uh, D Company had been in the trenches they were then relieved and taken out of the trenches and sent down to what was curiously described as a rest camp. Um, the rest camp was simply um, the slope of of a hill facing the sea, where they had, I think had dug a few holes and put some you know canvas tents. And it, the problem was that, like most of the peninsula, it was within range of the the Turkish artillery, and they were there for three days. D Company they suffered quite a lot of casualties. And on the final day that they were staying in um, Lalababa this was a shell fire, you know, was continual. Fred was injured. He wasn't killed immediately, but um, he was taken off to the nearby ambulance field station and I think died uh, a few hours later.
1: Now, there's an interesting legacy of all of this involving some seeds from a Turkish oak tree. Tell us that story.
2: Yes, uh, one of the things that Fred did while he was there was he arranged to send back to Ireland seeds from uh, a number of plants via the good in, via the good offices, incidentally, of a man called William Lacey, who happened to be the he was the caretaker at Glasnevin, and he was in the Royal Irish Fusiliers, and I think they probably you know had this conversation in the trenches at, at Chocolate Hill, whereby William Lacey arranged to get these sent back. Among them uh, were some acorns of Gallipoli oak or Quercus cocifera, and uh, these were sent back to Glasnevin. Some of those acorns were then sent on to a man called George Smith, uh, who ran a very famous nursery in, in Uri, and he planted these acorns, and it seems that um, you know, they, they grew successfully. And then about 15, 16 years later... He was retiring, he was selling his business, and he wanted somewhere, you know, for the acorn, the tree as it was, to go to. And so he had a conversation with uh, one of his main customers, a man called Frank Gilliland, who owned uh, quite a big estate in uh, called Brook Hall, uh, just outside Derry and uh, he gave the tree and it was then transplanted there and I think the particular reason why Frank Gilliland um, was keen to have it and why you know George Smith was keen for it to go there was that it it commemorated his association with uh, Fred Ball but it also commemorated the death of another member of the Gilliland family, um, Lieutenant Billy Gilliland, who uh, had also died at Gallipoli. So I think it did have a, a particular symbolic significance. Unfortunately, it didn't survive and it's not there, but uh, but I have seen exactly where the spot was because Gilliland kept a detailed journal of all of the plants that he that he got and he said exactly where he put them. So we do know where it was planted. So it would be nice at some point for a new one to be put in its place, I think.
1: Now, your grandmother, Alice, obviously became a widow very, very young. Uh, What happened to her subsequently? She did.
2: Um, I mean, obviously, it must have been a pretty difficult time recovering from what had happened but she was reported to have been involved in the work of the Comforts Committee and, you know, in helping the wounded from Gallipoli and other campaigns. But she then learnt to drive and then joined the Women's Royal Air Force. And there was a raft base at, um, at Talaq. And so she was based there for a while. And there's a wonderful picture actually showing her with one of the trucks that she was responsible for, for driving. And what happened after that was that she then, at some point shortly after that, met my grandfather, who was a uh, Major Robert King, and he'd been in the, the Royal Irish Rifles in the First War. They got married, but then they they moved to england and uh, I think this was actually less a matter of of if he had been a British army officer actually involved I think in military intelligence then he might not, might not have thought it was a very good time to be around but I think it was actually more to do with the fact that um, his family were very opposed to his marriage to to alice i 'm not I'm not quite sure why that was, but you know that was the case. And there was just also the question of employment prospects. I think there were more jobs in, in England. So so they left Ireland and uh, although they then kind of visited quite often, they uh, they never came and, and lived again in Ireland, although you know both had come from Dublin originally. Finally, just
1: to return to Frederick Ball, Charles Frederick Ball, or Fred, he was never known as Charles, I know. it's It's an interesting case study and what you do, I think, is you bring a number of different narratives of the war together in his story, don't you?
2: Yes, I, I think when you, you kind of get into this level of detail, I think what you realise is that um, everybody's experience is different, you know, according and depending on, you know, where you came from, what your background is. And then the, you know, the individual experiences that you actually have during the, the war, the, and during the campaigns themselves. And so I, I felt, you know, beyond simply saying that, well, clearly, you know, this is part of the narrative, but it's a fairly individual part of the narrative. And I think Fred, in a way, was in in a fairly unique sort of position. I I think he very much had, you know, one foot in England and one foot in Ireland. Most of his family was still in England. He went backwards and forwards quite a lot. But he had clearly resolved to to make his future in Ireland. You know, he intended to settle down with, with Alice he, I'm sure, would have ended up as the next director, the next keeper of the Botanic Gardens in in, in Dublin had he not been killed. So he was, he was an interesting character.
1: Well, the book will be published next month by the Liffey Press. It's called Charles Frederick Ball from Dublin's Botanic Gardens to the Killing Fields of Gallipoli. The author is Brian Willen. Brian, many thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you very much.
1: That's all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Kieron Dunn and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.
3: Follow us on Twitter
1: at RTE History Show.